Stamford was known as Ripuam by the Native American inhabitants to their region, and the very first European settlers to the area also referred to it that way. The name was later changed to Stamford after a town in Lincolnshire, England. The deed to Stamford was signed on the 1st of July 1640 between Stamford was purchased from the Indians under Chief Ponus by a Captain Turner of New Haven, who in return for a large tract of land made a payment of coats, hoes, hatchets, glasses, knives, kettles, and wampum. The arrangement was not entirely understood by the Indians and it was not finally confirmed until 1700, when additional sums were paid to some descendants of Ponus. During the Revolutionary War, Stamford became bitterly divided between Tories and Patriots. A number of Tory families, mostly adherents of the Anglican Church, left for Long Island and eventually moved to New Brunswick. Soldiers and Sailors Monument in St. John's Park was dedicated in 1922. The memory of Stamford men who served in all military engagements from 1641 to 1918. The first town hall was built in 1741. The only purpose-built town hall still in existence is the Beau Arts-style old town hall, constructed to replace the one that burned down in February, 1904. The next city hall land the current Stamford Government Center both were office buildings before being purchased by the city. In addition to operating its museum in Stamford, the Stamford Historical Society, founded in 1901, maintains the Hoyt Barnum House, constructed late in the 17th century. The Stamford Museum and Nature Center operates the 10-acre Heckshire Farm where visitors can experience aspects of a small New England farm. The Bartlett Arboretum incorporates the original 30 acres of land acquired in 1913 by Dr. Francis A. Bartlett and used by him as a research center. Judge John Clason, sometimes spelled Clason, donated money to found Stamford Hospital in 1892. The original hospital building was the mansion of one of Stamford's prominent families, Captain Turner of the New Haven Colony and Chief Oponus. The land that now forms the city of Stamford was bought for twelve coats, twelve hoes, twelve ratchets, twelve glasses, twelve knives, four kettles, and four fathoms of white wampum. The deed was renegotiated several times until 1700 when the territory was given up by the Native American inhabitants for a more substantial sum of money. In 1641, Ripa Am was settled by 29 Puritan families who had chosen to leave Wethersfield. The group had formed the Ripuam Company and contracted with the New Haven Colony to settle the Ripuam area. Hence initially there Settlement was a part of the New Haven colony, as was Greenwich to the west. The name of the settlement was changed to Stamford on April 6, 1642. In 1642, Captain John Underhill settled in Stamford and the following year represented 
the town in the New Haven Colony General Court. Stamford was included in there. Creation of a New Haven Confederation called the United Colonies of New England. Other towns or plantations in the United Colonies of New England included Milford and Guilford in Connecticut as well as South Hold on Long Island. Shortly after the restoration of Charles II of England, in a session of the Connecticut General Court held on October 9, 1662, the former New Haven plantations of Stanford, Sick, Greenwich, Guilford, and even South Hold were to be recognized as Connecticut colony towns with constables sworn in. The first public schoolhouse in Stamford was a crude, unheated wooden structure only 10 or 12 feet square. It was built in 1671 when settlers tore down their original meeting house, which they had outgrown after three decades, and used some of the timbers to put up a school near the old town. Hall on Atlantic Square. On the nearby common they built a new 38-foot square. 12 meters, meeting house, which also served as the congregational church. One of the primary industries of the small colony was merchandising by water, which was possible due to Stamford's proximity to New York. Starting in the late 19th century, New York residents built summer homes on the shoreline and even back then there were some who moved to Stamford permanently and started commuting to Manhattan by train, although their practice became more popular later. The densely settled portion of Stamford incorporated as a borough in 1830, and later as a city in 1893. The city consolidated with the rest of their non-city portions of the town of Stamford in 1949 to become the present city of Stamford. 20th century. USS Earsage Gun Memorial in West Park, now Columbus Park, in downtown Stamford. On Memorial Day, 1901, a cannon from the USS Earsage was placed in West Park, now Columbus Park, as a memorial to Civil War veterans, cast at West Point in 1827. The cannon had also been used on the USS Lancaster. There, artillery piece sat in the park until 1942 when it was hauled away for scrap. In 1904, the town hall burnt down. A new building in the Beaux Arts style was constructed from 1905, when the cornerstone was laid, to 1907 in there. Triangular block formed by Main, Bank, and Atlantic Streets. The building was eventually named Old Town Hall and held the mayor's office until about 1961, when Mayor William Kennedy moved to the municipal office building which formerly stood further south on Atlantic Avenue. Nearly all municipal offices were moved to 888 Washington Boulevard in 1988. On February 19, 1919, at the site of the present Cove Island Park, in their Cove section of Stamford, the Cove Mill factory of the Stamford Manufacturing Company burned to the ground in a spectacular conflagration. Stamford is the birthplace of the electric dry shaver industry. By 1940, Colonel Jacob Sick employed almost 1,000 workers at the Sick Dry Shaver 
Company on Atlantic Street. Downtown Development By the mid-1950s downtown Stamford had fallen prey to severe urban blight. A. Once vibrant downtown became littered with vacant storefronts, empty lots. Weak economy, unsafe and unsanitary housing. The town leaders at the time sought federal and state funding to launch a revitalization effort that would restore the core of the city to a vital urban center. On January 27, 1960 the city of Stamford and its redevelopment arm, the Urban Redevelopment Commission, entered into a contract with the Stamford New Urban Corporation, a subsidiary of the locally based and nationally active construction contract to the F.D. Rich Company that would lead to a dramatic altering of the face of downtown Stamford. The Rich Company, led by Frank D. Rich Jr., Robert N. Rich and Chief Legal Counsel Lawrence Gockberg, actively building in 25 of the 50 United States at the time, was selected out of a field of 10 developers vying for the opportunity to become the city's sole redeveloper of the 130-acre, 0.53-square-kilometers, section of the central downtown area known as the Southeast Quadrant. More than $100 million in federal, state and city funds were invested in a massive property acquisition, relocation, demolition and infrastructure creation program that paved the way for one of the most sweeping urban renewal efforts ever successfully carried out in the United States. The plan, which involved eminent domain takings, the relocation of 1,100 families and 400 businesses, was implemented amidst much controversy and several lawsuits that delayed the start of the project until 1968 when construction commenced on the three round apartment towers, St. John's Towers. These buildings still contain 360 apartments and originally served as relocation housing for some of the displaced residents. Much of their deteriorated downtown was raised to make way for the new downtown, resulting in a lack of historic buildings and a downtown that looks more contemporary and modern as compared to some its New England counterparts. Although the original plan was more modest in scope, involving light industrial buildings with a motor hotel along Trissa Boulevard and an open-air shopping promenade planned for East Main Street, the city and the redeveloper took advantage of an opportunity to capitalize on corporate moves out of NYC. Although one landmark square was completed in 1972, a 300,000SF office building which for 37 years was the city's tallest, it was the completion of the GTE World Headquarters in 1973 that became the catalyst for downtown office development, setting an example for other corporations seeking a less expensive labor pool a more favorable income tax structure and lower operating costs. Since then, the downtown renewal area has seen their construction of more than 8 million SF of office space, 1.5 million SF of retail space including the Stamford Town Center Moore and 4 department 
stores, 2,500 units of housing, near 80 restaurants have been added, 3. Movie theaters, a branch of the University of CT and 2 performing arts. Venues, the Rich Forum and the Palace Theater. In all the city contains. Almost 17 million SF of office space. The intensely developed central business district is just 3% of the city's 39 square miles, 101 square kilometers. The rest is heavily residential. Much of the city, especially in North Stamford, remained woodsy. The west side of Stamford, Connecticut, also known as Richmond Hill, is one of the oldest neighborhoods in the state of Connecticut. It is located north of the South End neighborhood, west of downtown and east of Greenwich. Connecticut at Old Greenwich. The different sections of the west side, including Vidal Court, Fairfield Court, demolished, Spruce Street there. Renaissance Building, the Trinity, and MLK Building, Connecticut Avenue. Friendship Building and Southwood Square, formerly known as Southfield. Village. The west side of Stamford is the area immediately west of downtown Stamford. Covering the area north of Interstate 95 between the Greenwich Town Line and the Ripaam River. The northern boundary is commonly taken as West Broad Street and Palmer's Hill Road. Another version of the boundaries of the west side has it located between Stillwater Avenue, Broad Street, West Main Street, and West Avenue up to exit 6 Interstate 95. Stamford had ranked as one of the country's safest cities three years. Running Breaking and entering rates were low, and violent stats were negligible, except for the west side, which had always been a sinkhole as far as O'Shea was concerned. That's where the gangs went at each other over drug. Turf. Semi-automatics floated around those parts. You saw a few drive-bys. But, as long as they were killing only each other, the city's feathers didn't get ruffled. The department knew the precise coordinates of where that mess began. And ended. Stillwater, Maine, West Broad, and West Avenue. The rectangle of refuse and at the center was Vidal Court. They kept it contained. Officers got calls to go in there, they kept their hands on their holsters and knew they might see blood. Jennifer Vandubs Strangers at the Feast, 2010. Many Italian Americans in the neighborhood in the 20th century immigrated from Minterno, Italy, and communities near it. The Mintonese Social Club, founded in 1939 and only made up of members whose families hailed from Minterno, had 120 members in 2007. A Mintonese tradition, there. Festa de la Rigna, Festival of Wheat, Celebration of Harvest Day and Honoring the Madonna del Grazi, is still honored with an annual Procession. On July 8, 2007 the procession was held on Stephen Street after a Mass said in Italian at the Sacred Heart Church. The procession included Women in traditional black and white dresses, 
afloat with miniature palm trees, a stuffed rooster, sheaves of wheat and an Italian flag, are marching. Band, a woman in red, white and green traditional dress with a sheaf of wheat. And men carrying a yellow throne with a portrait of the Madonna del Grazi. Spruce Street also houses many ethnic groups. There is regular Spruce Street, Haitian Spruce Street, and Jamaican Spruce Street, all separated by main streets. Local institutions. Stamford Hospital with a campus of more than 10 acres, 40,000 square meters, is the largest institution in the neighborhood. The Yearwood Community Center is located in West Stamford, as is Lion Park, and the Westover Elementary School. The public Egana Brennan Golf Course is to the north. The new Government House Soup Kitchen, established in 1978, is in their neighborhood and is the only soup kitchen set up to help people in Greenwich, Stamford, New Canaan, and Darien. Run by Catholic Charities of Fairfield County, the soup kitchen provides daily hot meals and extreme nourishment to the homeless. Palisai's Italian restaurant has been located at the same address on Stillwater Avenue since 1947. The family-owned restaurant is known for unpretentious, old-fashioned Italian cooking. Jody Maggio, Nancy Sinatra, Tony Bennett and Walter Cronkite have all dined there. The eatery sells more than 1,000 pounds of baked chicken a week. Yearwood Center Begun in 1943, and later named after Dr. Joyce Yearwood, the first black female doctor in Connecticut, this resource center provides education and personal development opportunities to Stamford's diverse community. The Boys and Girls Club of Stamford now operates the programs. The future of Yearwood Center represents how they raped the West Side, I say raped it, during urban redevelopment, said Cynthia Bowser. I live on a street that looks like I live in Soweto, South Africa. Stamford is a great city. It's the city that works works for who? Stamford residents outnumbered lawmakers three to one at a public hearing. Monday, where some accused the city of robbing Stamford's black community of its heritage by allowing the Boys and Girls Club of Stamford to take over their troubled Yearwood Center. Allowing the club to lease the building from the city will allow the Yearwood Center, which has been closed since running out of money more than a year ago, to reopen. In the end, over objections from some community members, the Board of Representatives approved the lease, but not before the public had its say and the nine-member Legislative and Rules Committee that held a hearing split three ways on the deal. Roughly 30 residents joined the panel for a last-minute public hearing on their lease. Many of them criticized the city's treatment of the center, which it owns, as opaque and out of touch with the interests of the community it served before shutting down. Michael Coleman who introduced himself as a member of the Save the Yearwood Center Committee, said that he believed the city had bullied Yearwood boards into signing over the lease. 
Joyce Griffin handed out copies of pictures chronicling the center's nearly century-long history. Dr. Joyce Yearwood, Fairfield County's first black female physician, founded the center in 1943 as the Stamford Negro Community Center. It later became the West Main Street Community Center before it was named after Yearwood in 1975. It serves the West Side's low-income community. For our community to find out that the city says it now owns the building. It seems like there is some manipulating going on when the African-American community had some property, had a building, and then it winds up with nothing, Griffin said. City officials said that was not exactly the case. Michael Pollard, chief of Staff to Mayor David Martin, explained that the city had owned the building and the land since the mid-1970s, according to records in the tax assessor's office. Other speakers pleaded to let the Boys and Girls Club get the center up and running again, so long as it protected the legacy of the center's namesake. My grandmother started in the backyard of her house with a group of kids. That's how it all began, and she worked very hard to get that present. Building, said Joyce Carwin, Yearwood's granddaughter. If this is approved, her legacy cannot, and will not, die. The Boys and Girls Club has seen an increase in membership and children since. Yearwood closed, and has been looking to provide more room for programming. It aims to start some new programs at Yearwood by September. Jack Bryant, who heads up the Stamford NWCP, urged lawmakers to accept some programming over no programming. As long as the legacy of the Yearwood Center remains in that building, Bryant said, whoever does it keeps that in mind. I would be happy to see children in that building. The three-way split on the Legislative and Rules Committee of the Board of representatives on whether to back the plan was only resolved in party caucuses. Reps. Keith Silver, Elaine Mitchell, and Eileen Heafy, all Democrats, voted for the lease, Republican Erin Ryan and Democrats John Zelinsky and Elise Coleman opposed it, Republicans Harry Day and Gail Ocon, and Democrats Susan Nabel and Gail Ocon abstained. After splitting into caucuses to discuss the lease behind closed doors, their full board ended up approving the deal by a margin of 30 to 5. Their lawmakers conceded some assurances that the community center would continue to reflect the mission of its founder. At the public hearing, which began two hours before the vote, Pollard stressed that it had been difficult to find anyone interested in the center at all, but the city had persevered in trying to find a new tenant rather than simply evicting the Yearwood organization. The Boys and Girls Club of Stamford began official arrangements to take over management in July. The proposed lease sailed through the planning board and the Board of Finance with the support of the Mayor's office. Yearwood's directors have already voted to surrender control of the center. Under the New Deal, they are still responsible for outstanding debt. Boys and girls would take over for five years at first, 
but the proposal also includes provisions for two 25-year extensions. At different times, the center failed to pay its employees and its bills and racked up about $200,000 in debt. City health inspectors found scores of violations at the center. The city had paid some utility bills for Yearwood, but eventually stopped. All told, the center has been shuttered for longer than a year. Former Yearwood board chairman Fernando Alvarez took over as interim director after Eugene Campbell was fired from the job. But his term has since ended. Along with his executive responsibilities, the directors began efforts to raise money to reinstate programs and get their lights turned back on in June, but have since abandoned any hope of retaining control over the center. The few historic buildings include the old town hall, 1905, currently unoccupied, the Hoyt Barnum House, 1699, and the old Yale and Town building, 1869, part of the Yale and Town complex was destroyed in a fire on April 3, 2006, which was once a lock company, the city seal has the two keys from it. The Yale and Town property, owned for many years by Samuel Heyman, was sold in 2006 to a syndicate of investors and developers who are in their midst of redeveloping it into a complex of residential and retail buildings. Stretches of Atlantic and Bedford streets remain essentially as they were originally constructed. As noted above, the redevelopment was contentious, with groups of residents suing to prevent the demolition of nine city blocks and the displacement of businesses and families. After building High Ridge Park, a suburban corporate campus, in the 1960s, the F.D. Rich Company put up the city's tallest structure, landmark building, and the GTE building, now one Stamford Forum, both designed by Victor Bisharat. The Stamford Marriott, also Bisharat, with a revolving restaurant at the top, overlooking Long Island Sound, is another F.D. Rich landmark that changed the look of downtown. 9. In the 1980s Frank D. Rich III, Susan M. Rich and Thomas L. Rich joined their company playing major roles in the redevelopment of the city. In 1980 F.D. Rich Company completed 10 Stamford Forum, a 250,000 SF office building, designed by Stephen M. Goldberg of the New York office of Mitchell Chegola, and Throughout the 1980s it built the 1 million square foot, 93,000 square meters, Stamford Town Center Mall, 4 Stamford Forum, designed by Caesar Pelly, 6 Stamford Forum, Arthur Erickson, and 8 Stamford Forum, Hugh Stubbins, 300 Atlantic Street, Aldo Jagola, and 177 Broad Street. When real estate prices collapsed in the late 1980s, the company had to sell some of its properties, but continued to own the Stamford Town Center Mall, High Ridge Park and Key downtown parcels. Many of the buildings along Trissa Boulevard, parallel to Interstate 95, had
little but street level lobby spaces, garage entrances and exits accessing. The street, although they presented a modern, glittering glass facade too. Travelers along the highway. The Rich family, which still owns F.D. Rich Company. Led by President and CEO, Thomas L. Rich, was criticized for creating pedestrian unfriendly streets, and Trissa Boulevard became notorious among many architecture and urban design critics. Facts that shaped the pedestal. Design of the office buildings south of Trissa that are little known are as follows. The high water table in that area prohibited the development of multiple levels of underground parking. Therefore, parking needed to be supplied in above-ground structures which served as podiums for the office. Buildings providing the opportunity for a view over the adjacent highway. Embankment to the south. The lack of retail along the Trissa Boulevard frontage is attributable to a prohibition on retail being developed in this area by the planning board of the city who did not want to dilute the retail existing and planned elsewhere in the renewal area. The streets were never meant to be for pedestrians, Robert N. Rich, then head of the company, told a reporter for the New York Times in 1999, apparently referring to Trissa Boulevard and the immediate area around it. GTE came here because they were bombed in New York. Crime was a problem in the city. That's why the buildings were designed to be impenetrable. 9. Over the years, other developers have joined F.D. Rich Company in building up the downtown, including Avalon, Arkstone Smith, Seth Weinstein and Paxton. Kinnell who have developed many four-story rental apartment buildings. Corcoran. Jenninson constructed Park Square West Apartments on Lower Summer Street. There. Michigan-based Storbman Company partnered with F.D. Rich Company in developing the Stamford Town Center Mall, UBS and RBS, taking advantage of state and local tax incentive programs, built their headquarters in downtown Stamford. W&M Properties built and owns Metro Center, a prominent building just south of the Stamford train station where Thomson Corporation, officially a Canadian company, has its operational headquarters. Today most of their downtown office buildings are owned by RFR Realty and SL Green. F.D. Richco, still located in downtown Stamford, sold or gave up nearly all of its Stamford buildings, including the landmark, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. The company developed and owns the Bowtie Majestic Cinema building, much of the retail and office space on Lower Summer Street. Along with the Khan family, they brought Target to their Broad Street location on land they jointly owned. Rich and Khan own the ground floor retail space under Target facing Broad Street. In 2005, the company opened its 115-room courtyard by Marriott Hotel at the corner of Summer and Broad Streets, which houses the restaurant Napa and Company. Today F.D. Rich Company has under construction with partners Donald J. Trump and 
Louis R. Capelli, Trump Park Stamford, a 170-unit, 35-story condominium. Tower which when completed in July 2009 will be the tallest building in their city, eclipsing one landmark square by more than 80 feet, 24 meters, in height. Needs update, F. D. Rich Company and Capelli Enterprises own a site at the corner of Atlantic Street and Trissa Boulevard which has been approved for twin 400-foot-tall, 120-meters towers slated to contain a 198-room Ritz-Carlton Hotel, 600,000 SF of condominiums and 70,000 SF of retail space including their Restoration of the Atlantic Street Station Post Office. The Rich Forum, A. Downtown Performing Arts Center and the Rich Concourse, the main public space. At the downtown branch of UQ are both named after the Rich family. Low. Enterprises controls a site on Trissa and Washington Boulevard that has been approved for three 350-foot-tall, 110-meters, residential towers slated to contain 835 units of for sale and rental housing along with 135,000 SF of retail space fronting Trissa Boulevard. 21st Century On September 11, 2001, nine city residents lost their lives in the 9-11, Attacks, all at the World Trade Center, Alexander Brajinsky, 38, Stephen Patrick Cherry, 41, Jeffrey W. Cloud, 36, John Forito, 40, Bennett Lawson Fisher, 58, Paula Hughes, 38, Sean Rooney, 50, Randolph Scott, 48, and Thomas F. Kauf, Jr., 44 a total of 65 Connecticut residents lost there. Lives on that day. One of the biggest fires in Stamford's history occurred April 3, 2006 in there. South End. The fire started in a piano store in a building that was part of the former Yale and Town Lock factory complex. It spread to a neighboring building housing antique stealers. Eight businesses were destroyed and others were damaged. City fire marshals never determined the cause, but said an unfixed sprinkler system helped the fire spread. Firefighters used 1 million gallons, 3,800,000 liters, of water in three hours and then had to pump water from Long Island Sound when the water mains ran out. Dark mushroom clouds formed over the scene visible for miles along Interstate 95. About 200 residents from homes on Pacific and Henry Streets were evacuated. In July 2006, more than 100 antiques dealers filed a class action lawsuit against the owner and Terry's real estate services of Greenwich. In recent years, Stamford has appeared as a setting in some television shows, in the NBC television series The Office, the character Jim Halpert transferred to a Dunder Mifflin branch in Stamford. The sitcom My Wife and Kids is set in Stamford. An episode of The Cosby Show mentioned a 
neighborhood supermarket chain as being based in Stamford. In the early afternoon of August 3, 2006, one of the hottest days of the year, when air conditioning raised electricity consumption, downtown Stamford experienced a blackout after underground electricity cables on Summer Street overheated and caught fire. Many offices were forced to close down. A concert. Part of the Alive 5 series, with Hootie and the Blowfish continued at Columbus Park early that evening, but many restaurants had to throw out their food beforehand. Stamford was, fictionally, devastated in a 2006 Marvel Comics miniseries called Civil War. The story depicted a group of superheroes being filmed for a reality television show as they raided a suburban home being used as the safe house for a group of supervillains, one of whom, Nitro, used his power to explode to destroy the neighborhood. Although no specific Stamford buildings seem to be depicted, a store sign from a timeless journey a local comic book shop is featured in issue The Amazing Spider-Man number 532. Marvel writer Jeff Loeb, who grew up near Riverbank Road and attended the former Riverbank Elementary School, came up with the decision to use Stamford, according to an article in The Advocate of Stamford. The use of the comic book store sign came because the store owner, Paul Salerno, was quoted in an April Advocate story saying he'd love to have his store depicted, even if it were devastated. In the series, the day after the article came out, the store owner got a call from Marvel. Stamford had previously appeared in Marvel Comics as the location of the suburban home of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman of their Fantastic Four, at a time when the married couple were semi-retired as superheroes and attempting to establish a normal home life for their son. Franklin. Citation needed. On October 11, 2007, a freak storm dumped 5 inches, 130 millimeters, of rain in about 4 hours in Stamford and nearby communities of New Canaan, Darien and Norwalk. The storm flooded streets and basements and caused the loss of electricity to 700 homes, with about 20 people needing to be evacuated from their cars and 40 others removed from their homes to an emergency shelter. The Federal Emergency Management Agency later said 41 homes in Stamford, and 11 in Darien and New Canaan, had about $167,000 in damage. City sewers and drains were clogged. The city was sued in 2009 by homeowners who asserted that a city employee failed to start a pumping station on Dyke Street soon enough, but a city lawyer called the event a 100-year storm that simply overwhelmed municipal resources. Since 2008, an 80-acre mixed-use redevelopment project for the Stamfords Harbour Point neighborhood has added additional growth south of the city's downtown area. Once complete, the redevelopment will include 6 million square feet, 560,000 square meters, of new residential, retail, 
office and hotel space, and a marina. As of July 2012, roughly 900 of the projected 4,000 Harbour Point residential units had been constructed. Controversies Ku Klux Klan in Stamford The Ku Klux Klan, which preached a doctrine of Protestant control of America and suppression of blacks, Jews and Catholics, had a following in Stamford in the 1920s. Across the state, the Klan's popularity peaked in 1925 when it had a statewide membership of 15,000. Stamford was one of the communities where the group was most active in the state, although New Haven and New Britain were also centers of support. During the 1924 election, one of the largest Klan meetings in the state took place in Stamford. Grand Dragon Harry Lutterman of Darien organized their meeting, attended by thousands of Klansmen. The Stamford Republican Party used its Lincoln Republican Club as a front for all Klan activities in the area. The Stamford Advocate, as the advocate of Stamford was then known, published an advertisement signed by local Democrats who relied on the Catholic vote, protesting the meeting. The Klan published an advertisement in response, noting the un-American names of some of those who signed the Democrats' statement. By 1926, the Klan leadership in the state was divided, and it lost strength. Although it continued to maintain small, local branches for years afterward. In Stamford, as well as in Bridgeport, Darien, Greenwich, and Norwalk. Connecticut has so many advantages that it might be hard to understand how it became one of America's worst performing state economies. As we know, Connecticut is located along an important commercial corridor between New York and Boston. It's well served by railroads and highways. Major airports are accessible. Connecticut has many charming towns, historic sites, stylish shops and nice beaches. CNN determined that of America's 25 towns with the highest median family incomes, four are in Connecticut, New Canaan, number one, Darien, number two, Westport, number five, and Greenwich, number 14. The most expensive American home ever offered for sale is Copper Beach Farm which with an asking price of $190 million, has 50 acres of waterfront property in Greenwich. Although Connecticut lacks a major high-tech region, there's a concentration of executive talent capable of managing large organizations. Many are in financial services. Despite these attractions, during the past two decades some 300,000 more Connecticut residents have moved out of the state than have moved in. This compares with the current population of about 3.5 million. Perhaps with the complacency of old money, Connecticut policymakers came to believe they didn't need to compete for investors and entrepreneurs. The key people who make prosperity happen. Keep in mind that government basically doesn't have any money other than what it extracts from the private sector via taxation.
As a columnist for the Hartford Quran remarked, businesses here have become vulnerable to appeals from places like Florida and Texas that Connecticut leaders once thought they could safely hold in low regard. When investors and entrepreneurs consider important decisions like where to establish a residence, where to operate a business and, yes, where to die, they compare their options. From a financial point of view, Connecticut turns out not to be a great option. For instance, Connecticut ranks number 50 the worst in annual economic growth. According to the Department of Commerce's Bureau of Economic Analysis Connecticut's economy contracted for the second year in a row. Connecticut is the laggard. Reported Connecticut Department of Labor economist Daniel Kennedy between 1996 and 2006 before the financial meltdown and recession the number of Connecticut small businesses declined by 2.2%, while the average experience of all 50 states was a 10% increase. Only Ohio and West Virginia did worse than Connecticut. Its small businesses account for about half of the state's private sector jobs. Government spending is out of control. Two years ago, Connecticut Governor Daniel P. Malloy signed a $1.8 billion tax hike, the biggest in the state's history, that supposedly would generate enough. But it wasn't enough for their next budget, enacted this year. It was balanced mainly with gimmicks like shifting some $6 billion of Medicaid spending off budget. State Budget Solutions, a think tank monitoring state finances, reported that among the 50 states Connecticut has run up the fourth largest pile of debts per capita, $27,540. This includes unfunded liabilities for government employee pension funds. The total is almost double the per capita debts of financially strapped California. Higher debts imply higher taxes in their future. Barons considered Connecticut to be in the worst financial shape with debt and pension liabilities a higher percentage of GDP, 17.1, than any other state. The financially strongest state, South Dakota where debt and pension liabilities are only 1% of GDP. Connecticut is one of the worst business climates in the country. Factors affecting a state's business climate include the individual income tax, corporate income tax, sales tax, property tax, unemployment insurance tax and security of private property. For example, as the Tax Foundation reported, Connecticut imposed a temporary 20% surtax on top of its flat 7.5% corporate income tax, in effect raising its rate to 9%. This 20% surcharge is an increase on a supposedly temporary 10% surcharge that has been in place since 2009. The American Legislative Council, in its annual Rich States, Poor States, study, ranks states two ways economic performance and economic outlook. Their economic performance ranking is based on a state's GDP trend, migration trend, 
in or out, and non-farm payroll enrollment trend. The economic outlook. Ranking is based on 15 factors including the top marginal personal income tax rate, the top marginal corporate income tax rate, property tax burden, estate tax burden, public employees per 100,000 population, state liability system. Survey and whether a state has a right to work law. Connecticut is ranked. Number 46 for economic performance and number 43 for economic outlook. The Connecticut Business and Industry Association reported that 70% of executives believe the value they receive for their tax dollars is extremely low considering the amount they pay in taxes. The Cato Institute gives Connecticut Governor Daniel P. Malloy an F grade for his economic policies that throttle investors and entrepreneurs. Malloy creates a more hostile climate for business, but then tries to compensate for the damage with tax incentives. Connecticut's probate court system seems to have gained a reputation for loading unnecessary costs on estates and sometimes arbitrarily nullifying wills, a practice that's hard to distinguish from looting. Yale Law School Professor John H. Langdon declared that Connecticut probate is a national scandal. How did Connecticut end up in this mess? Some perspective, early success, great potential. Like other states, Connecticut started out with agriculture, then expanded with trade and boomed with manufacturing, ships, railroads, saddles, sewing machines, carriages, brass fittings, corsets, guns, on and on. Such enterprise displayed a lot of Yankee ingenuity. Fast-growing industries attracted thousands and thousands of immigrants as well as native-born people looking for jobs. Connecticut's population grew mightily. During the 1920s, however, Connecticut began to feel competitive pressures as 14 of its 47 textile mills moved to less costly locations in the south. Democrats gained control of Connecticut during the Great Depression, but neither they nor their progressive comrades at the federal level were able to banish Depression-era high unemployment. It persisted throughout FDR's New Deal in part because the New Deal tripled taxes, which meant employers had less money for hiring and consumers had less money for spending. Depression-era unemployment didn't come down until the government began conscripting millions of young men for military service during World War II. 